please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we will be reviewing three articles from the November-December 2021 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. I'll start this off. I'm Jerry Lee. I'm an associate professor of allergy immunology at Emory University School of Medicine. I'm joined again by my two co-hosts. First, Marin Caravella. Hi, everyone. I'm Marin Caravella, and I am an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University in Atlanta with Jerry. And then Dr. Stan Feynman. Hi, Jerry. Thank you. I'm a past president of the college. I'm the current editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch, and I'm a clinical faculty member at Emory as well. So we have a really interesting potpourri of articles. I think we should jump right into it. Stan, I think that you wanted to review an article teaching us a little bit about our understanding of anaphylaxis. Correct. So I chose an article that was reviewed by uh, Dr. Josie in the Allergy Watch issue on November, December 2021. And the article is entitled Characterization of Anaphylaxis Reveals Different Metabolic Changes depending upon severity and triggers. And it was published in the journal Clinical Experimental Allergy in October of 2021. And it's from researchers who are in Spain. In fact, they're in Valencia, Spain. And the interesting thing about this is that they used metabolomics to characterize the different metabolic changes in patients who presented to their clinic or emergency room with anaphylaxis. Now, metabolomics, I had to really look this up, but it is a study of the different metabolites in various biologic specimens, and it's being used to help us with precision medicine. So if you think about the genome being a DNA, the transcriptome, of course, RNA, and then that leads to proteins, which is a proteome, and then the metabolites from that are the metabolomes. And that includes like the sugars and the nucleotides, amino acids, and lipids. So these researchers basically looked at patients who prospectively went to their clinic or their emergency department with the diagnosis of anaphylaxis. It was a small study, but it was prospective. And basically what they did is they looked at 18 episodes of anaphylaxis in these 18 patients. And they were identified or suspected trigger was classified as either drug allergy, nine of the patients had that, food allergy in six of the patients, and idiopathic in three of them. So the anaphylaxis was rated then as moderate in nine cases and severe in eight cases and mild in one case. And serum samples were obtained during the acute phase of the anaphylaxis when they first presented. And then in a recovery phase, after two to four hours later, and then a few months later, they got a basal state and the metabolomic profiling using a liquid chromatography and also mass spectrometry and also protein nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. So a variety of these different techniques to help explain the pattern of the metabolites in these different patients. The interesting thing about this article was that they 
basically found a clear pattern in the metabolic changes during the onset of the food triggered and the moderate to severe anaphylactic reactions distinct from the changes seen in the drug or the food triggered episodes that were severe. So the food anaphylaxis model seems to reflect the metabolic changes specific to the IgE mediated reactions. And it was supported by the analysis of the samples of the drug triggered reactions as well, which distinguished between the IgE mediated reactions to antibiotics and the non-IgE mediated reactions to the non-steroidal like anti-inflammatory medications. So the metabolic differences were also seen in comparison in the acute phase and the basal phase in the moderate versus the severe reactions. So the bottom line is that the levels of the 10 metabolites were increased, including a variety of things like oleamide, lactate, and various lipids, while other things like cholesterol and betadine were lower. These were some of the samples in the basal group of the patients who had the severe type reactions. So the conclusion of the study was that they found that there was increased level in the acute phase of the acetate, glutamine, also phenylalanine, and also histidine. Now, we do know that glutamine is a pro-inflammatory signal. Phenylalanine is involved in the nitric oxide production. Histidine, of course, is involved in histamine. And so these are all reacting very quickly. And this shows that it's a very rapid metabolic response of these metabolites that we know are associated with the severe anaphylactic uh, events. The moderate anaphylactic reactions were characterized by a reduced level of some of the other metabolites, such as the fatty, some of the fatty acid chains. And when you looked at the baseline, the cortisol levels were somewhat different. So to sum it up, basically moderate anaphylactic reactions appear to result from the inflammatory metabolites and some of them could be involved in the endothelium and immune cell participation. On the other hand, the severe anaphylactic reactions between the first sample and the second sample a few hours later, the amino acid fatty acyl type chains could point to a more sustained inflammatory reaction in these severe individuals. So they might even be predisposed to have that type of reaction. So I thought it was an interesting study. We don't see studies on anaphylaxis very often. And the comments from Dr. Dosi included that only a select number of the reactions showed a significantly a significant rise in tryptase level. We always look for tryptase level, but in fact, it wasn't that helpful in differentiating patients. And we know that sometimes it's not helpful because if it's positive, it's significant, but negative may not be. So the Hope is that maybe we'll have some sort of a predictive type marker to identify individuals at highest risk for these life-threatening reactions based on these metabolomic type studies. Wow, that's fascinating, especially the baseline data, right? Like even before they have anaphylaxis, just getting a readout on what could potentially happen, I can mention it would be incredibly helpful as we decide, make decisions on should we pursue the food challenge and, and do shared decision-making. Or even if we think about what's the risk of future reactions and their severity, we always say that IgE is not very helpful. Yeah, getting baseline data to predict anaphylaxis severity sounds incredible. 
What is this coming out? Like, what's that? You want to use it now, but we don't have it available. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, Stan, so when I saw this paper, the first thing that came to mind was, yes, that makes sense. Like it makes sense that there's going to be heterogeneity in the metabolic profiles with different agents just because of the expansion of phenotypes of what we now consider anaphylaxis. Because as much as I don't want to date myself, like when I was in fellowship 10 years ago, we used to think of anaphylaxis as being restricted solely to IgE mediated events. And now we think of even cytokine mediated responses as being anaphylactic. And those of course are not mediated by tryptase. And we consider NSAID mediated reactions and other non-IG mediated reactions such as um, iodinated contrast being anaphylactic in nature. And so it makes sense that with all the different pathways that are involved, that the metabolic changes would also be consistent with the different agents. And so we'll get like anaphylaxis endotyping clearly defined with biomarkers. That's, I guess, the big picture. That'd be incredible to have that data stream. What do we have right now? We have tryptase and IL-6 and what else is out there, Marin? Is that it? Uh, <laughs> I mean, acutely, yes. I think acutely, those are the only biomarkers. And Wow. That's pretty sad. I, I think we'll be really sort of looking backwards on how we've been trying to muddle our way in terms of assessing reactions <laughs> and realizing that we had all hand, all fingers and all our arms tied behind our back when we're trying to figure this out. So that's exciting. Thanks for presenting that article, Stan. So I guess we could go to the next article. And I would have to say that if someone decides to publish an article in the field of allergy immunology in nature, probably going to get your attention. It certainly got my attention that we got an article in our field that hit nature. And so the top of this article is local immune response to food antigens drive meal-induced abdominal pain. And this was published online initially January 13, 2021. So it's over a year old at this point. So the background is irritable bowel disease. So we know that irritable bowel disease is very different from type 1 hypersensitivity and not getting hives and the other things we'd expect from mast cell mediated disorders, the typical story that you might hear from an irritable bowel syndrome patient is that they had a infection, maybe GI infection, but then they get these abdominal pain episodes and altered bowel function like diarrhea or constipation. And it's associated with stress or meals. So meals are a trigger. But we think of that as quote-unquote functional, potentially non-immunologic. Now, there, there's some evidence that, that abdominal pain is associated with what they're calling VHS or visceral hypersensitivity. So it's thought to be an increased response to stimuli that relates to pain. And they found that there is some evidence to suggest that muscles may be involved in this visceral hypersensitivity. So they really wanted to at least try to model a potential mechanism where mast cells and Ig could be linked to what we associate with this visceral hypersensitivity in irritable bowel syndrome. And so they did that with a mouse model. They took mice, exposed the mice to an infection, but also exposed them to egg ovalbumin protein at the same time. So in that context of infection, I guess you would think of that as like a sensitization event. And so they had this ability to measure how sensitive the mice were by putting this transmitter in the abdomen. And then they do this sort of distension of the 
intestine. And so they're able to notice how much signal is being transmitted. And that would, uh, they call this the vesicuromotor response, or essentially what is the neurologic output with the same stimulus or distension of the intestine. And so you can imagine if someone is hypersensitive, you'd have an increased signal essentially, right? And that, that, that's what they're calling potentially increased pain in IBS. So they do this experiment where they do this infection with the egg protein. And once you know it, when you expose the mouse to the egg later after the sensitization phase and you give them egg, they actually have increased diarrhea symptoms. And this is after infection clearance. There's no evidence of infection. But the most interesting thing about this is, is that if you do like skin testing or you do blood testing for egg IgE, it is normal. But if you look in the colon, there's evidence of local Ig production. And we know this happens. This happens in inhalant or respiratory allergy, this idea of entopy or local Ig production where you do like skin testing or serum Ig is normal, but there's evidence of local intestinal Ig. So they went with this. They sort of looked at this and they, not only they see the local Ig production, but they also see evidence that they have this increased pain response due to that, again, that VMR response. And there's some evidence that maybe it's associated with intestinal permeability. Now to really make the case that this was involved, that Ig is related to this response. They actually gave anti-IgE. They tried this in knockout mice who cannot make IgE. And they noticed that it abolishes a lot of this hypersensitivity, this visceral hypersensitivity when you abolish IgE. So it does seem to be Ig dependent. And also if you try it in mice, that if you eliminate mast cells, let's say you give a treatment that removes mast cells, let's say that you try it in a mouse that has a knockout, they give a mast cell stabilizer, it actually abolishes the response as well. And they actually gave a antihistamine, they gave an H1 receptor blocker, and that also reduced that neuronal excitability response. So it was interesting, this response of this increased pain perception and this potentially IBS-like symptoms in this mouse model was IgE mast cell and histamine receptor dependent. And it was associated with local Ig production, but not systemic Ig production. So the big question is, oh, yeah, okay, that's a model. That's not really, mice aren't human. So they went one step further. And this is the most interesting part of the paper. So they recruited patients who had irritable bowel syndrome, but they had normal food allergy testing, and they compared their responses to healthy volunteers who did not have IBS. And what they did was, is they did food antigen injection. So they did an endoscopy. And what they did is they injected either control saline or histamine, like our positive negative controls, and they injected soy, wheat, gluten, and milk into the intestines. Not like a skin test, but like an intestine test. And what they found was, is that compared to saline and controls, patients with irritable bowel syndrome had significant swelling and diameter reactions to food proteins. And that was increased versus healthy controls. And so when they analyzed those biopsies in that region, they did see evidence of mast cell degranulation as well. Now, again, they didn't do food challenges or anything more rigorous, but this sort of sets the stage of this increasing 
hypothesis that maybe some of irritable bowel syndrome is actually Ig mediated, but you know we sort of downplayed that earlier because we didn't detect the IgE based on skin testing or uh, serum Ig. But if it's actually local Ig production, if this is a form of entropy, then maybe we're missing these potential allergic responses to food explained to our IBS, and maybe we should actually go after it, right? And so this sort of raises the question, what if we blocked IgE in IBS? What if we gave anti-mast cell therapy, ciglic or something like that? Would that affect IBS? It's sort of intriguing. I'm not sure where they went with this. Uh, it's been about a year, but it's just something I never thought about, that entity of the inhalant system could maybe potentially be seen for food antigens as well. So anyways, I thought it was really cool. It is very interesting because we see patients who complain of these abdominal pains with different foods and they always, they say, well, I've, they're pretty consistent about it and we don't have a good answer for them. The problem I had with the study was that they injected the antigens rectally. And I mean, that's not the way people get antigens. They eat them. So... I mean, I understand that seemed to work, the mouse model seemed to make some sense, but the human model, I don't know. I had a problem with that. I, I don't know about you guys. <laughs> yeah. And I think two of the controls also had borderline reactions in the human model, correct? Yeah. Obviously they have the little error bars and that sort of thing. So they made it. But if you're asking me, was there zero responses? No, they made this sort of arbitrary threshold. I forget the millimeters. I want to say it's eight. And there's a couple sort of controlled dots for wheat and gluten that mm -hmm. were a little bit above this sort of arbitrary threshold. So yeah, it wasn't a completely a separation. And again, they hadn't, didn't have a lot of controls. They had like a couple, like eight, eight. controls. Yeah, and yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't know if this is good news or bad news, right? Like this paper. I don't know how often you, both of you get referrals for mass acidic enterocolitis or the, when they do mast cell stains for irritable bowel syndrome in the gut. And then I do get quite a few referrals from GI for food allergy testing. And until I saw this paper, I would always say there was no basis for food testing. And now I feel compelled to disclose that maybe there is, but we're not offering it. Yeah. Is the gastroenterologist going to do the test for us? Are they even willing to do that? I'm not sure they should, by the way. I'm not suggesting they should either. I think that this type of study is probably, it's good to be aware of it. Number one, we all see these kind of patients who are struggling with abdominal pain with certain foods. And I think what I can now tell my patients is people are doing research, starting with mice, but there may be something to this, but we just can't put a finger on it right now. You know, we always learn new things. I always learn a long time ago, not to blow someone off. We always have to keep an open mind. Yeah, for sure. Right. I was just actually wondering if IBS is going to be the new interstitial cystitis where you treat them with antihistamines. And Well, Maren, you obviously picked an amazing paper, which is what we struggle with. We got the patient on the biologic. Now what? So I'd love to hear this about, give us some guidance about what do we do about these biologics now that we've started them? Unfortunately, the paper doesn't give us a whole lot of guidance, and I'll tell you why in a second. But anyway, it was published in Jackie in Practice last year and reviewed for Allergy Watch by John Oppenheimer. And it talks about when to stop biologics if we choose to do so. And I get this question all the time. And 
most of the time, my patients whom I start on biologics ask me when they can stop them even before they've gotten the first dose. And so there is no good answer, as John Oppenheimer points out in his introduction, like we have like very well-defined guidelines on when to step down most therapies for asthma, but not biologics, right? So this was an observational study that tried to compare people who stopped biologics and compare them with those who continued them. But it wasn't a controlled trial. They just used this large health insurance claims data set looking at longitudinal health data for commercial as well as Medicare Advantage enrollees. And they identified this big cohort of asthmatics from 2003 to 2020 and categorized them as biologic stoppers if they had received biologics and then they stopped therapy after about six to 12 months but were followed up for at least six months after stopping versus biologics continuers who stayed on therapy for at least 18 months. And then they used propensity score matching using a number of different variables to create a matched cohort of continuers and stoppers. And because they used claims data, the only endpoint that they could really analyze was the frequency of exacerbations And so over time, and so they looked at the treatment response in the first six months of biologic use, and they defined responsiveness based on a reduction by greater than 50% in exacerbations as compared with the preceding six months. They had a large cohort of close to 5,000. And overall, the bottom line was that they found discontinuation failure rates as defined as recurrent exacerbations after stopping. In 10% of stoppers and 9.5% of continuers. And so essentially, the odds of failing discontinuation was the same among stoppers as if they had continued the medication. And then they did a secondary analysis looking at severe exacerbation. And there was, again, just a very similar rate of discontinuation failure. And there was no difference in the time to the first exacerbation between the two groups in a secondary analysis using only severe exacerbations, that is necessitating unscheduled medical attention or oral or systemic steroids. And so the authors stated that clinical judgment can be applied to discontinue biologics safely in selected patients. But the study, there are some discrepancies with previous studies looking at stopping asthma biologics. The one that we are most familiar with is EXPORT, looking at long-term omalizumab users who were switched to placebo and then monitored for about a year after. And those who stopped therapy were much more likely to have recurrent exacerbations. And this was 53% versus 33% among those who continued therapy. And in a time-to-event analysis, the separation between continuers and stoppers happened pretty quickly in the first few months. And this paper also references an unpublished study looking at mepolizumab discontinuation among people treated with at least three years of mepolizumab who are randomized to either continue or stop and then assessed every three months. There were lower rates of asthma exacerbations in people who continued mepolizumab at about 32% versus people who stopped, where it was almost 50%. And severe exacerbations, however, were similar in both groups. So the possible reasons for this discrepancy, as suggested by the authors of the paper, was that this cohort 
may have selected the most appropriate candidates for discontinuation and also attributed these differences to those changes in post-biologic therapies. But there are a lot of obvious limitations associated with this paper, primarily that the outcomes, first of all, are limited to those that can only be assessed using this claims data, whereas in real life, decisions to stop or continue biologics are also based on the effect on many other aspects of quality of life related to asthma. And also, they were unable to assess what the exact factor was that led to stopping, because I know I've had to switch patients from biologics because of insurance reasons or side effects or access to care. Or There's so many other factors that go into this. And so while there was in this paper a similar adjusted odds of failure in both stoppers as well as continuers, there is definitely much more research needed on exactly when to stop biologics. So unfortunately, I don't have the answer for you. And I wasn't pressuring you to do so, but <laughs> we always hope I get the same question asked. And the only one I feel somewhat more secure on a definite pathway to discontinuation is the classic allergic patient, right? Because then we have a intervention that's designed to reduce medication use, which is immunotherapy. So the classic established control with biologic desensitized remove therapy, that pathway is very clear to me. The other ones, especially the late onset, adult onset, that's a different phenotype of asthma, potentially more intrinsic than externally triggered. And then that is sort of more challenging because we're not really changing the patient at all with this therapy. We're just, it's an anti-inflammatory like anything else. Nothing's changing, mm -hmm. nothing's being modified. So I think, I don't know, can you stop it? I would love to get your thoughts, Mary. What's your approach then? I try to wait until we achieve clinical control, whatever that looks like for the patient. And then if they would like to start stepping down, I'll start spacing out therapy and see how they do and see what the lowest doses that we need to control them based on symptoms and spirometry or the lowest frequency rather. Oh, I see. So no one really stops. They're just getting it spaced out. Spaced out. Yes. So I have lots of patients who've been able to space out successfully, but maybe I just don't have the guts to stop altogether. You know, it's interesting you say that because part of the challenge with these patients is the third party payers and getting them approved. And obviously we're somewhat reluctant once we do get them approved to completely stop cold turkey like that. And I kind of agree with you. I mean, I've certainly done that a number of times, extended the interval to reduce the frequency and to see what the changes are. I think we need this kind of studies like this, this big data type studies from the problem, of course, as you mentioned, was the selection of the patients. I mean, we don't know these patients, were they compliers before? Were they not compliers? I mean, who knows? I mean, there was a lot of unknowns with this. Compliers with biologics or ICS lava? ICS lavas. They did actually, I did go into this in this paper, but they actually did develop something called a medication possession ratio. Yeah, I was just looking at John's comments. He did talk about the fact that there was this ICS lava treatment consistency before starting the biologics. He said it was less than 40% of this possession ratio. That is correct. Well, I think we're just going to still do the best we can to do share decision-making on establishing asthma control versus the cost and the other quality of life issues that come with biologics. 
So I guess we'll stay tuned for future studies. That will wrap up our podcast for today. If you enjoyed what you're listening to, please rate us on iTunes. It really helps us out. Please give us a review. And we also want your feedback. We want to know if you have any corrections. If we want to hear your thoughts about some of the articles we've been discussed, please share that with us at our email address. It's one word, allergytalk at acaai.org. Hope that you've enjoyed yourself. Have a good one.